We are gathered to open up the Word of God, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. All I can say to begin is what a week it has been. What a difference a few days makes. We are living in turbulent times, and people are rejecting Christ's lordship all around, usurping God's authority, mocking His Word, and it is nothing new. It happens individually, it happens nationwide, it happens worldwide. You would have to have been living under a rock somewhere not to know that three days ago, the United States Supreme Court was caught playing God once again. This time, redefining marriage and setting it into stone via law. The high court ruled five to four that same-sex couples have a nationwide right to marry no matter what individual states or the residents might say. Franklin Graham replied, with all due respect to the court, it did not define marriage and therefore is not entitled to redefine it. It should grieve the hearts of Bible-believing Christians the way the world is going because it is a grievous offense against God. It grieves the heart of God. None of us should expect unbelievers to display the fruit of the Spirit or act like believers should. But that does not absolve people of their responsibility before God. All people are ultimately accountable to God whether they acknowledge Him or not. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Before I came to faith in Christ, I was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is rightly revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they push it down. Romans 1 says they give hearty approval to those who do the same. It's where our country is at. Psalm 14.1 says the fool says in his heart there is no God. You can be the smartest person in the universe and be a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God. See, claiming to be wise, Romans says they became fools. But here's what you should know. This is not the time to wring our hands and say, oh no, what's going on? Things have been like this since the beginning of time, and we should say this, no matter what man may say, no matter what man may do, God is still God, God is still and always will be Almighty God. The Bible is still the same, it doesn't change. Our mission as a church has not changed, and I hope. Over the last few days, the gospel has become nearer and dearer to your heart. That's what I hope. The reason for a believer's existence pushed to the forefront of your mind with pinpoint accuracy. We are here as believers on earth to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. That's it. We're not messing around. It's so easy for us as, as Americans to kind of just go messing around through life. And this, this should tell us 
wait a minute, you know when the Bible says evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived? The world isn't getting better. But the gospel shines brighter in the darkest night. We are here on earth as believers to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We have the all-powerful Holy Spirit indwelling us and sanctifying us. We need not fear the encroachment of the world upon the church. Now today we're in Acts chapter 1. We're looking at verses 12 through 14. And you're going to see what people whose lives have literally been turned upside down do. How God prepares their hearts for what's next. What the aftermath of crazy things going on in the world looks like. You're going to see how God reassures his people, how he refocuses them in the right direction. Let me say from the get-go, uh, if things are unsettled in your heart and life, then be encouraged by what you see that the apostles did. I want you to stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And we stand to, to honor God. It's not something magical. It's just something I know is biblical. doesn't mean you have to stand every time you read it. But we stand to say, this, this word we're reading right now is inspired of God. It's from God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's not like any other word. These words are different than what any human could speak. This is the word of God. Okay? I'm just going to read three verses. Start at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers." Lord God, I pray that you would give us clarity today for what we should do as you prepare our hearts for what's next. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm probably going to do this every time I preach a sermon for the book of Acts. I want to give you some sort of Roadmap, some sort of compass. Where have we been? Where are we going? What has happened in the book of Acts? What's it all about? In Acts, we see the glory of God displayed through Christ's church. The risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit-empowered witnesses, and God's sovereign purposes all the way throughout. We see the birth and dramatic growth of the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says that Luke's gospel was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. The key word there is began. It implies that what Jesus did until he was crucified and resurrected was only the start. The beginning. Jesus is now continuing his redemptive work through his people. And Acts is the continuing story of Christ's work after the resurrection, after the ascension, over the first 30 years of the church. 
It's 2015, and Christ's work <clears throat> continues. Christ's redemptive work continues. But here we look at the 30 years after the resurrection and ascension. And it was written for a purpose. Acts was written for a very distinct purpose, the same purpose that Luke was written, that true believers would know with assurance the truth of what they'd been taught, that they would be encouraged, they would have assurance that they navigate the the tricky and the treacherous waters of life as citizens of heaven on a hostile world. It's a hostile planet for believers in Christ And I think it should be comforting for us to know what the first disciples, the first Christians went through as we go through our own turbulent times. Acts is a bridge book. It bridges the Gospels with the rest of the New Testament. It is a transitions book from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of his apostles, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant from Israel as God's witness nation to the church comprised of both Jew and Gentile as God's witness people. Early on when I came to Grace Church, I preached through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And Hebrews explains the theology of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. And now we're in the book of Acts and what that shows is the practical outworking in the church of this transition from the old covenant to the new we're in the second half of chapter one now and it tells of the disciples waiting actively waiting in the upper room prior to the coming of the holy spirit the apostles were to wait for what the father had promised which jesus said you heard from me he talked a lot about the holy spirit so did the old testament prophets they announced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in connection with the new covenant. Isaiah thirty-two fifteen speaks of the Spirit being poured out on us from on high. God says in Ezekiel thirty-seven fourteen, I will put my Spirit within you. Now we just saw last week the ascension that happened forty days after the resurrection, and we know looking back that the day of Pentecost was fifty days after the resurrection. It ended up being, for the, the apostles, a 10-day waiting period until the Holy Spirit came upon them where the apostles were waiting. They did not know when it was going to be. They knew it would be soon. And God used that time to calibrate their hearts toward him. He's going to do the same for you in your waiting periods of life. When, when you know that he has promised something, but there is no There's no timetable on it. Ultimately, that's the return of Christ. And then every promise God has made in between. I'm going to give you a little bit about Pentecost because you're going to hear Pentecost a lot and we'll get into more detail in Acts chapter 2. But Pentecost refers to the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. It was held 50 days after Passover. The The Feast of Weeks was the time of the Jewish year when the first sheaves of harvest were presented And the first Christians were all Jews. They would have known the Old Testament traditions. They would have known the feasts. And they would have seen and understood the tie-in with Pentecost and the birth of the early church. On the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 plus souls are, are saved by God, they would have 
realized, wow, that's the first fruits of something bigger and greater that is going to happen. The response to the gospel as it's preached from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the first fruits of, of something much greater that's going to go on. And if you're a believer today, you're part of that growth. The gospel went all the way to where you were and where you are and beyond. So you're part of that church that was birthed in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. At the start, all the apostles would have known was that, wow, Jesus was just taken up to heaven before our very eyes and we're supposed to be waiting for the baptism of the holy spirit ultimately for christ's second coming but we don't know what's going to happen exactly next we don't know what's going to look like we don't know what's going to sound like what it's going to feel like we're just waiting acts 1 9 tells us a cloud hid jesus as he was taken up it's a special cloud a a glory of god cloud it signifies the glory of god the shekinah glory of god like the cloud over the tent of meeting when god's glory filled the tabernacle the cloud on the mount of transfiguration and verse 11 tells us the angels assured these shocked disciples think about all the things they've been through just in recent days Jesus being whipped to a bloody pulp, beaten to a bloody pulp, and killed on a cross, and then put in a grave, and then he rose from the dead, and he appeared to them, and now he's transported in front of their very eyes up to God, up to the Father in heaven. Jesus, the angels say, will come back in the same way you saw him go, in a cloud of glory. That's what Jesus taught. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So the cool thing is, the expectation of Jesus' return started immediately after he was taken up. But Jesus made it very clear that that was sometime future, not immediate. They asked that, and he says, no, but you will soon receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They would receive his indwelling presence and power to be Christ's witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness for Christ? It means to be a person who tells the truth about Jesus from your own personal experience. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ. The word literally means one who dies for his faith because that was the price of being a witness for Christ at that time. How are they preparing for what's next in life? God told them to wait. You see uh, active waiting in the upper room. They weren't lounging around, you know, eating um, kalamata olives and feta cheese and pita bread and hummus. Um, That's not what their big deal was about, as we'll see here. We're going to look at what did it look like and and what did they do as they waited. And then I think through this, we're going to see how you can prepare for what's next in life when God tells you to wait. So what it looked like? First and foremost, the first thing we see them do, and it's, we're not going to take a long time on it, but I'll tell you, it, it, it drives everything else that happens here. The first thing you see them do is obey. Obey. They obey Jesus' command to wait instead of jumping into action immediately or leaving the scene completely. 
And it was a time of active preparation. It was not empty idleness. Verse 12 says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Olivet was across the Kidron Valley, east of Jerusalem, on a hill that was about 200 feet higher than the city. It was the place where Jesus ascended to the Father. It was a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem. That wasn't how far you were able to run. Like if you want to have a race with your friends and you said, who can go farther on the Sabbath? It wasn't that. It was how far you were allowed to go on the Sabbath. Turns out not very far. Six-tenths of a mile, a little over half a mile. The distance, the background is the distance between the tabernacle in the wilderness and the furthest tents. It's the time it would have taken, the, the, the distance it would have been from the furthest tents in the encampments all the way to the tabernacle. That's the furthest you could go on the Sabbath without breaking, you know, what God said in, in Exodus. So they go back to Jerusalem. They don't flee. They actually go. They obey Jesus' command. What I'd say to you today is to obey God is always better than doing something else. It's always the best thing to do. You go, well, but I, I really want to go do this. Well, if it's not obeying God, you shouldn't do it, okay? Now, if God hasn't told you, like if you want to go to the beach today, that's not going to be in the same classification, okay? But let's just say you want to hold a grudge. Well, you can, but you'll be disobeying God. Let's say you want to hate somebody. You can do that, but you'll be disobeying God. So it's always better to obey God than do anything else. So if, if, if God says, believe in the Lord Jesus, you should do that. If God says, repent of your sins, you should want to do that. If God says, forgive those who have wronged you, you should do that. If God says, love people, love everybody, or be kind to everyone, you want to help me here? You should do that. If God says you should tell the truth, and, and you should speak the truth in love, you should truth in love, you should do that. If God says you should boldly take the gospel, you should do that. So first they obey Jesus. It's awesome. That's what, I'm serious, it drives everything else. So verse 13 says, when they, that's the 11, had entered, where? Jerusalem. They went to the upper room, upstairs room, where they were staying. The upper rooms in those days were the, the awesome room, okay? It was like the best room, all right? If you got one of those rooms in your house where you're like, I love hanging out in this room, okay? Some men have like man caves and things like that. Sometimes, you know, people have their spot that they really love and they decorate it up and it's the, it's the favorite place. It's the living room. The upper room was the living room of that time and sometimes they got rented out this would have been probably the case here who knows but often they would serve as a place to have a big assembly or a study or a time of prayer the fact that it was the upper room means that it was well known to them this was a place that they knew it might have been the place where Jesus and his disciples kept the Passover before the crucifixion might have been the room that he appeared to some of them after the resurrection might have been a room in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the church later met. Read that in Acts 12, 12. But verse 14 says that all these, who? Well, the 11, and the end of 14 says, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
and his brothers and Jesus' brothers. So there's a lot of people in this upper room. Verse 15 tells us in those days there turned to be about 120 people. But if you look at who's listed here in verses 13 and 14, you might know a lot about some of them. You might say, I know a lot about Peter, you know. We know Peter, don't we? Then you say, well, who's Bartholomew? Can't even say his name. You might know more than you think about some, and you probably know nothing about others. Peter's the one that jockeyed for position. Peter's the one that stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter's the one who brashly blurted out stuff and made many blunders. That's why I love Peter so much. I don't know if you know this. I never really told you this, but when I was a kid, uh, I was called Motormouth. You're like, uh, we're not surprised, right? You know, you love to talk. I, I was called Motormouth, and um, I guess there was nothing I w- didn't want to talk about. But Peter was kind of like the Motormouth of, of the apostles, and, you know, he had issues. Then you got John, the beloved disciple, the one who sat next to Jesus, the younger brother of James. You got James, uh, John's brother from the son of a thunder mother, right? Uh, sons of Zebedee, James and John, and, and Andrew. Andrew, who went and found his brother Peter and brought him to Jesus. You got Philip, the evangelist. You got Thomas, who doubted Jesus' resurrection. And then you come to Bartholomew. Who is this guy? Well, that's not really a name, by the way. It's more of a nickname. So who is Bartholomew? I'll give you a hint. Nathaniel. That's Bartholomew. The guileless man. The man who says... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He just kind of said it. He was honest about it. He had doubt of Christ's messiahship, but it vanished when he met Jesus. And then you had Matthew, the gospel change tax collector, and then you got James, the son of Alphaeus, and he's James the younger, James the less, not to be confused with James, the brother of John. Some of these names, it's kind of like Mike. I mean, my home group's got like six Mikes, okay? You just gotta have to get to know each other. You got Simon the Zealot. I love this one. Simon the Zealot. Here's a guy who belonged to a noble-minded, you know, basically political type group who loved their land, who loved their independence, and anybody who would interfere or try to domineer was considered hateful. This guy gets saved by Jesus, and I love it. He's still called the Zealot. Forever he'll be called the Zealot. God's word stands forever. He's called the zealot. But here's a guy that now became zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now became zealous for the gospel. Now became zealous for the truth. And lastly, you have Judas, the son of James, a.k.a. Thaddeus. And yet the women refers to the same women who visited the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. They discovered the tomb was empty. with Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. And then you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark this well. This is the last time she is mentioned in the New Testament. This is her last appearance. And I love the last image we have of her. She's in the upper room worshiping God with the church. She's she's venerating God. She knows who's to be worshipped. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Her name doesn't appear again in the whole New Testament. And then you've got Jesus' brothers. They're there. They're named in one place in the whole New Testament. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. You've got James and Joseph, also known as Joses, and Judas, also known as Jude. 
and Simon. Told you a lot of similar names, okay? Don't get confused here. But before the cross, all four of these were skeptical of who he says, who he said he was. Skeptical of everything about Jesus. In fact, eight months earlier, John is basically saying they, they don't believe. John 7, 5, uh, they, they're unbelieving. And you don't see their conversion, but, but James could have been saved in that post-resurrection appearance that Jesus had with him. Got his half-brothers there with the church, in the church, becoming leaders in the church, writing Bible books. The first thing you see is they obey. The 11 obey. And then you see him in the upper room with this group of people that just love the Lord Jesus. Now, the second thing you see is something that I hope, as we go through the book of Acts, that you will say, wow, I never I never realized how important this is to my life in Christ. I hope as we go through this book, you say, wow, I've always kind of undersold that idea, that concept, that truth, but now I see, as I've gone through the book of Acts, that it it gets deeper and deeper as it it gets unearthed, and wow, this this is one of the biggies for believers. The second thing you see them do as they waited is they practiced fellowship. Fellowship. We short sell it. We say, well, we got together, had some pizza, watched a ball game, talked a little bit, prayed at the beginning and at the end. We had fellowship. No, not necessarily. You're going to see this as we go through the book, but at deeper and deeper levels of fellowship, what it really means. I want you to see just one thing about it right now, though. Just for now, just one thing I want you to notice about it. And, and Luke uses a word, a phrase. It's two words in English, one word in Greek. And he uses this 10 times in the book of Acts. He loves this concept. It's the idea of them being of one accord. One accord. You see that in, in verse 14. All these with one accord. I'm going to give you the Greek word. It's, it's a long one. It's for a reason. It's homothumadon. And it means together with passion. It's the two words being put together. Together and passion. It means they were fiercely focused in fellowship. They were of one accord. They weren't just together in the same place. They were united. Not just in in being together and being witnesses of Christ. They were united in their hearts and their minds. Deep, deep unity. How do you get that? I think one of the ways you get that is going through traumatic life experiences together. That can do it to you. That can give it to you. What did they go through that was traumatic? Well, three years with Jesus, seeing amazing things and terrifying things, and then seeing Jesus, again, beaten to a bloody pulp, and put on a cross, and and put in a grave, and then rising from the dead, these earth-shattering things going on, and and being transported up into heaven, and they're going through this, and I'm sure they're thinking, we're not the most popular people in Jerusalem right now. I think it'd be very easy to have been, to have been, you know, succumbing to, to fear, and saying, what's gonna happen to us when we go outside? Maybe we should stay in the upper room. They were united. 
It seems to me that the prayer of Jesus in the upper room in John 17, 22, when he prays to the Father that they may be one, Lord, Father, even as we are one. God the Son is praying to God the Father that they would be one even as we are one, that that prayer was in part being answered right there. They were one. They were of one mind. They were united. They were like-minded from the beginning. They were agreeing together what to do. No one selfishly saying, I'm going fishing. Who's with me? They were God-dependent. I wonder who else was in the room, the upper room. I wonder if Nicodemus was there. I wonder if Joseph of Arimathea came. I wonder if the Emmaus Road disciples were there, or Mary and Martha and Lazarus, all the people that Jesus healed, people that he rose from the dead. What about people who at Christ's resurrection came out of their graves and walked into the city. Maybe they got into the upper room. Who were these people? They were the, the, the nucleus of the brand new church. The nucleus of, of Christ's new community. A mixed bag of frail and failing people who would not act and knew they could not act until they had power from God, until they had assurance from God, until they had His authority to go. Unified in Christ, very beautiful, very beautiful. And the outflow of that, the outflow of that is what you saw to begin with when we read this passage, you went, that's the one thing they did. No, it's the third thing they did. <laughs> they obeyed, they experienced deep fellowship, and the third thing we see, it's really the outflow of of, of the other two is they prayed. They declared their dependence on God. They acknowledged his power and authority amongst them and said, I can't, we can't do anything without you. Uh, that's the third thing we see them do. They, they prayed a lot for 10 days. This wasn't a token beginning and ending to sandwich between the main event. This was the main event. They prayed. The family came together in crisis. They came together to celebrate who God is. They devoted themselves. Verse 14 says they devoted themselves to prayer. It, literally, they continued continually, constantly in prayer. You know what the, uh, the least popular church event always is? Prayer meeting. Say, we're having a preaching service. We're going. We're going to read through the whole book of Acts. I'm there. We're going to go have a picnic in the park. Woo! We're going to have a prayer meeting. Where'd everybody go? Why is it so quiet in here? Where is everyone? It's just the way we're wired. We don't want to wait. We think of waiting as a barrier to getting what we want. We don't like to wait in line much less wait upon God in such a way that we, we declare a lot in a time-consuming way that we can't do anything without Him. We're too self-sufficient for that. We, we know all the answers already. Why do we need to pray? I, I think you're probably thinking, well, Peter was probably like that, right? He's like, come on, why do we need to pray? Let's get out there and I got you know, places to go and people to see. I got, I got gospel to preach here go you go well it's only a, a 10 days everybody can wait for 10 days and they, they couldn't even wait for a few hours with jesus in the garden of gethsemane 
Ooh, but they got changed between then and now and now they are praying and I'm guessing that the pattern of praying in Jesus name started in the upper room Jesus said John 14 13 and 14 if you say, ask anything in my name I'm going to give it to you the pattern of praying in Jesus name wouldn't have started when he was with them would have been after he left would have been here up the upper room so the driving passion the primary activity post ascension activity was not a mere token but a time consuming passion of devotion to God where they're pouring their hearts out before him appropriately humbled by the magnitude of recent events and the mission that they've been given Matthew Henry when he's commenting on the struggle of the Israelites and Egyptian captivity wrote this before God unbound them before he set them free he put it into their hearts to cry out to him you see the early church on its knees before God looking for him to provide what he promised John Calvin said prayer is not a sign of doubting but is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things that we know he has promised they were waiting for what the Father had promised, the Holy Spirit. Now, believers today, you get the Holy Spirit at the moment of, of belief and of, of regeneration, but we're always waiting on God to fulfill His promises in His perfect time. The biggest one we're waiting for is Christ's return. But think about what it was like for the, the 11 apostles. You know, next week we're going to see that one more gets added, Matthias. But here's the 11. They've just been told they're going to be witnesses for Christ everywhere which means to hated Samaritans, which means to the ends of the earth, to non-Jews, to people who were not like them, who didn't believe like them, who didn't follow the word of God, and they're supposed to go. That's a daunting task. You feel overwhelmed today? There's more people that live today. You should feel more overwhelmed. Feel worse right now. Feel worse than the apostles because there's more people on the earth. But then there's more believers now than there were then, so... I don't know what the ratios are, but it wouldn't it have been easy to go, wow, this is overwhelming. So what's their preparation? When Jesus says, wait, what's their preparation? How simple can you get? Obey, have fellowship with one another, and, and pray. Simple obedience, like-minded fellowship, and persistent, persistent prayer. Now their situation was very unique. Uh, the church was being born the spirit's going to come in power they're going to turn the world upside down that's what was said in Acts uh, these people that have turned the world upside down has come to our town too you know, we don't want them here and, and they turned the world upside down and the gospel spread and it reached even to us and beyond us God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us and this is true of all believers he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved so we who know and love Jesus have been reborn and we're part of the church that was birthed at Pentecost. We're part of the church that began with those 11 and the women and Mary and Jesus' brothers. We came from them. So your best preparation for what's next is, is what theirs was. Obedience and fellowship and prayer. 
First, you just need to simply obey. I was reading James Montgomery Boyce this week about situations. He was talking about situations where we most often learn obedience. And he says, there are the times when we can't see why we're called to do what we're doing. Let me give you an example. Let's just say one of your kids or one of your grandkids is is walking towards a bee on the ground. A dead one. A dead bee. Or it looks dead. You decide. And you say, don't pick up that bee. Well, little Johnny's going, no, I like the bee. I want to I pick up the bee. And ooh, it's not dead. Bah! You know, this got burned by, I got stung by a bee here. And he burned me, yeah, with his stinger. And uh, something similar happened to me when I was a kid. I just remember this. A big old swollen foot. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, sometimes you, you, you're, you don't have the reason for why you're called to do a certain thing. God says to do it, and you're like, but it doesn't make any sense to me because as I'm reasoning it out, and that's the problem. We think we can reason it out. We think we can work it out in our own mind. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the way is the way of death. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. So the times that you don't know, that you don't know if it really makes sense what you're called to do, that's when you learn obedience. Do you think it made sense for the apostles to go back to the upper room? You'll be my witnesses all through the earth. It's kind of like, I'll take it or leave it. I could just see like, who's in and who's out. I mean, Jesus said this. He said, if you're not... If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you scatter. I can imagine him saying that to the apostles and saying, who's in or who's out? We're going now. But instead he says, you you go back and wait for what the Father has promised. And my thought is, they're all thinking, we don't get it, but we're going to do it. Jesus said it. Uh, He did rise from the dead. Let's give him that, right? That's big. I can imagine. So now we're faced with uh, all sorts of things in our own lives, our own hearts, um, problems you have. Some people have told me, well, the thing about the Supreme Court, it doesn't really make that big of a difference to me because I got this other stuff going on. I get it. Totally, okay? Totally get it. Um, but I think uh, Albert Moeller had a really balanced perspective on the gay marriage thing becoming the law of the land. And I think through that, I think, I think you get a picture of, of what it means to obey even when you don't understand and things just seem upside down and you can apply this to the issue of your own heart that has nothing to do with this topic okay he says this in one sense everything has changed and yet nothing has changed the cultural and legal landscape has changed as we believe this will lead to very real harm to our neighbors but our christian responsibility has not changed we're, we're charged to uphold marriage as the union of a man and a woman and to speak the truth in love We are also commanded to uphold the truth about marriage in our own lives, in our own marriages, in our own families, and in our own churches. We're called to be the people of the truth, even when the truth is not popular, and even when the truth is denied by the culture around us. This isn't the first time. It won't be the last. You need to get used to it. Christians have found themselves, Moeller says, in this position before. We will again. God's truth has not changed 
The Holy Scriptures have not changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. The church's mission has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tomorrow. To the end of the age when there's forever and ever and ever. Amen. God is sovereign. He knows everything. He's given us a very high calling as believers. Represent him to the world. Be ambassadors for Christ. Citizens of heaven sent to represent him. And he is not surprised by what's going on in the world. Neither should we be. We might be, but we shouldn't be. You should not expect unbelievers to act like believers. God doesn't expect the world to act like Christ followers. But he does expect professing believers to act like Christ followers and to live it. And what God expects, what does he do? He enables. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. And here's what's going to make our witness truly effective is when we surprise the world with blessing instead of cursing, with love instead of hatred, with compassion instead of condemnation. You don't need to agree to be agreeable. We are called to be salt and light. Salt's not supposed to lose its what? Saltiness. It's salt. It's supposed to be light. It's supposed to illumine darkness. So it doesn't mean you ignore what's going on in the world. It also doesn't mean you lash out in self-righteousness against ungodliness. Here's what you should do battle with. Do battle with the indwelling sin in your own heart. Do battle with your propensity to create idols in your own life. Human heart is an idol factory. And, and you disobey God when you focus on what other people are doing wrong rather than what you have done wrong. Confess your own sin, repent of your own sin. Don't ever celebrate sin or condone sin, but don't condemn people for their sin. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Book of Acts, Exhibit A, Acts 4. Don't speak any more in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. We will not stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Acts chapter 5, they bring him before the council. The high priest questions them. We strictly charge you not to speak anymore in this name, and now you've filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you're bringing this man's blood upon us. Sorry. But Peter and his apostles, Peter and the apostles answered, that was me, it was all me. We must op- make babies cry today. I don't want to do that. I love the babies. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. At the same time, remember this. The unbelieving world is your mission field, not your enemy, not your adversary. So surprise your community. Surprise them. Rather than waging a war of words, remove the planks out of your own eyes. Wage war on sin that so easily entangles your own heart. Remember that you need Jesus' cleansing blood every single day. And you can be compassionately invitational to people who don't know Christ. The world is darkened in its understanding. Yes. And the task of the church is to be salt and light rather than telling everyone outside the church that they're wrong. We need to get serious about being salt and light 
and show the world a radically different option. Radically different option. Quickly, I will just say this. You need to band together in fellowship, like-minded fellowship. Our, we are called to walk by the Spirit. Our dependent response is to stand together in unity with our fellow Christians. And here's one way we can do it. Don't take pot shots at fellow Christians who disagree philosophically or even politically with you, but stand together in unity around what? The gospel by which we are saved. Humbly submit your your mind and your heart and your words to the Lord because his court of approval is supreme and that's the one you should bow to. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Uh, the cultural landscape that we live in is, is going to draw us nearer and nearer to our fellow Christians. Last part. We need to persistently pray. Prayer is the best preparation for preaching the gospel. Because God has told us to depend on Him, not our own strength. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit. As you persevere in prayer, it's going to lead to many people hearing about Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 19 says, and pray for me also that I may speak boldly, opening my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's right there with prayer. I believe now it will be seen if we really believe the message we preach. Preach the word. We talked about this last week. Preach the word person to person in personal witness and group by group in public proclamation. It is socially unacceptable, but it's pleasing to God. I believe the church will experience great revival when we actually seek to live out the gospel rather than try to legislate the, the, the world's morality and behavior. We, we should grieve when immorality is legislated, but we should not expect or think that we can legislate someone's morality. Here's the awesome truth in this moment. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And he is the Lord of the harvest. And he will bring a harvest. So don't curse the darkness. Shine the light of the gospel to dispel the darkness and so that Satan's captives could be, could be set free by the truth. Don't put your trust in politics. Place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't wring your hands in anguish that all of our civic freedoms are being taken away. Get used to it. Raise your hands and praise to God that you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ and his shed blood. I do believe we think that weight equals a barrier to what we want. But here's what weight meant to the apostles. The doorway to discern the will of God. The doorway to discern the will of God of God because praying is waiting and waiting is praying. One of my favorite books, I have a collection of old books, one of my favorite books uh, is by Andrew Murray. It's called Waiting on God. He wrote it in 1896. He wrote a sequel in 1901 called Working for God. So waiting on God and working for God. And he explained how the two fit together. Two verses where the connection between waiting and working are made clear helps explain what the apostles and God were doing during the 10-day waiting period. Isaiah 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. 
No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. See, first, waiting brings the needed strength for working. Waiting on God makes us strong in work for God. And the secret is this. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We are Christ's witnesses. Empowered to do so in a compelling way, compelled by the grace of God to reach people with the gospel through preaching the gospel. And the best prep is prayer. So pray your will be done, Lord, as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. Because as I close, I will just say this. We live, like I said at the beginning, in turbulent times. That's not an understatement. People are rejecting Christ's lordship and usurping God's authority. And guess what? Newsflash. Our culture is not moving further away but closer to the first century culture. The apostles' culture said that Caesar was God. And anyone going against the emperor was blaspheming God and deserved to die. We're not there yet. It is getting darker in the world and it is to be expected. I've mentioned this already. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and all that. And evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I'm excited about it. Because it's the way God says it will be. And it means that the light of the gospel, the glory of God in Christ, will shine all the more brighter in the darkest night. The apostles didn't speak against the world They spoke for Christ. If it wasn't clear before, I hope it's clear now that we're not messing around. It's a great time to be on earth as a believer, alive in Christ, reborn by the Spirit of God, bringing good news to a fallen and failing world of the mercy of God. Lord God, thank you that of first importance is that Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised to life. Lord God, thank you that the cross accomplished your merciful redemption of the spiritually dead. We were unable to help ourselves. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Lord God, that Jesus paid for sin and purchased people lost in sin and secured the forgiveness of sin so that there is hope for all who believe. Thank you that we have the Spirit alive by the Spirit of God. We want to go where you lead. Whatever's next. In Christ's name, amen.